So now we're going to talk about the new Jerusalem, the new heavens, and the new earth, which are basically the same thing. Now, first of all, before I get started, I want to give out a heretical preterist warning. Revelation is not primarily about, primarily about the second coming. That's what I've been trying to say these last two months. It's about the establishment of the new covenant, which I've not really pointed out too much. But I'm, at the end of the book, uh, we get to the positive stuff about the establishment of the new covenant. And this is what everybody always asks me. When is Jesus coming back? When is Jesus coming back? I just had somebody send me an email just last week asked me that. Well, what about Jesus coming back? Well, we've got to remember Jesus is coming back. Just because that's not the focus of the book of Revelation, that doesn't mean the rest of the scripture is not applicable. Look at Acts 1.11b, two angels. These were two angels speaking. This Jesus, talking to the disciples, this Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come in the same way that you have seen him going into heaven. How did the disciples see him going into heaven? Physically, literally, visibly into heaven. He's coming back. 1 Thessalonians 4.16, For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the archangel's voice, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. That's Jesus coming back physically, literally, and visibly at the end of time. There are so many hyperpreterist heretics out there on the internet. You've got to be careful about this, and I want to be careful too. I am not a heretic. Now, Let's look at the theme of the book of Revelation. Now, I tried to come up with one nice sentence like I was in the English class, you know, years ago. The establishment of the new covenant, and I've got that bolded there, the establishment of the new covenant, which has been aided by the destruction of Rome and apostate Israel, and which continues in the present, which establishment of the new covenant continues in the present, ongoing reality of the new covenant, which will endure for all eternity. Now, what I'm trying to say is that, yes... The new covenant was established in the first century, but I'm not saying it stops there. The new covenant goes from the first covenant, the first advent, all the way to the second advent, all the way through our century, all the way into the future whenever Jesus comes back, and I would say even all into the eternal final state. So that's what the book of Revelation is about. All right, and to show that in the last three chapters, we're only going to do this chapter here. Last Wednesday night, we talked about the millennium, and my view of the millennium is that thousand years is a symbol, a symbolic number for the new covenant, the new covenant church age. This chapter, New Heavens and the New Earth, I'm going to show you beyond a shadow of a doubt to a reasonable certitude, beyond any cavil, that chapter 21 is about the new covenant. And then next Wednesday night, I'm going to talk about the river of life and the tree of life, which both are symbols of the new covenant. So that's what we're talking about today. Now, that phrase, new heavens and new earth, there's two ways of interpreting that phrase. There's futurist way and the preterist way. Futurist views split a little bit. Some people say the new heavens and the new earth are, is the millennium, which is that thousand year, so-called thousand year period in the future when Jesus comes back, which I don't believe in, but they do. And after the millennium is a final eternal state, I'm going to lump them all together and say that the millennium and the final eternal state have immortal Christians in them, okay? Immortal Christians who do not die and do not have children. And I'm going to show you that the new heavens and new earth, as predicted by Isaiah, had mortal people, mortal believers in them and people having babies. So I'm going to say that the new heavens and new earth cannot apply to the future, but replies to the new covenant church. Now, let's see. I thought I had a, well, there, okay, it's coming. All right, so let's start with verse 1. 
Then I, John, saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there's no longer any sea. Now the phrase new heaven and new earth comes from Isaiah 65 and 66. Isaiah 65, verse 22, For I will create a new heaven and a new earth. The past events will not be remembered to come to mind. Isaiah 66, 22, For just as the new heavens and the new earth which I will make will endure before me, this is the Lord's declaration, so your offspring and your name will endure. Now the question is, was Isaiah predicting a new physical heaven and a new physical earth? Or was he talking about the new covenant? My contention is that Isaiah was predicting the new covenant. I do not believe he was predicting a final perfect condition in the final eternal state. And how do I know that? Well, let's look at verse 20 of Isaiah 65 first. In her, it's referring to Jerusalem, a nursing infant will no longer live only a few days, or an old man will not live out his days. Indeed, the youth will die at 100 years. Well, now you've got death in the new heavens and the new earth. Death. Is there going to be death in the final eternal state with Jesus? No. And the one who misses 100 years will be cursed. Let's say somebody makes it to 95. Oh, that poor guy, he's cursed. They're going to be cursing in the final state? I don't think so. Isaiah 65, 22 and 23, first part of the verse. They, that's people in the new heavens and the new earth, will not build and another inhabit. They will not plant and another eat. For as the lifetime of a tree, so will be the days of my people. Well, that's nice. But trees do die. But anyway, that's nice. And my chosen ones will wear out the work of their hands. Like your car, you know, you build a car and what happens to it? It wears out. Everything you build in this earth wears out. This is, not go, is there going to be maintenance in the final state when we're eternally with Jesus? I don't think so. How about this? They will not labor in vain or bear children for calamity, for they are the offspring of those blessed by the Lord. Are there going to be babies born in the final state? Because Jesus said there's no marriage in heaven, no marriage, no babies. So already we see a description of a nice society, the lion will lay down with the lamb and all that, but yet but there's, it's not a perfect society. And if you want to take Isaiah 65 literally, like many people want to do, and say, you see in the final state the lions will not attack the lamb, so therefore that must be something that we don't have today. I say, okay, well let's take it literally. How about this? How about all that stuff in the red? That's literal. Alright, so let's start with verse 1 of Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there's no longer any sea. Now, I said earlier that I think the new heaven and the new earth is talking about the new covenant, which is not a physical thing. Jesus himself referred to the old heaven and earth. Matthew 5.18, Jesus said, he was speaking to his disciples, he said, I assure you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or one stroke of a letter will pass from the law until all things are accomplished. Now, if heaven and earth is talking about something physical, a physical heaven and earth, that means the law, every stroke of the law, will be around until that physical heaven and earth dissolve. Okay? Now, what's in that Mosaic law? Well, we're supposed to stone rebellious children. Y'all ever been rebellious? In the law, you're going to be stoned, Right? Homosexuals are stoned. Adulterers are stoned. Uh, we're not supposed to grow tomatoes and cucumbers in the same garden. So is that true all the way until heaven passes away that we're under every stroke of the law? Well, of course not. It's not true. It's true until all things are accomplished. Now, Jesus was speaking before he died on the cross when all things are accomplished. When he says it is finished, that means when all of his cross work, all of his 
shedding of blood for the sins of the world, when that was finished, when that was accomplished, that's when all that Mosaic law would pass away. Now, that's the Old Covenant. So, when heaven and earth pass away, the Old Covenant pass away, what does that imply? There's a new heaven and there's a new earth. Isaiah was talking about the establishment of the Christian church. Jesus was talking about the establishment of the new covenant. This is what John is talking about, Revelation 21. If I saw a new heaven and a new earth, he's talking about the establishment of the new covenant, which, of course, happened in the first century and continues all the way off into the future state. There's no longer any sea. Remember the sea, this is an easy symbol. The sea stands for the tossing and turning of the Gentile nations who are constantly in turmoil and fighting each other. There's not going to be any of that. There's not going to be any rebellion and wars and all that kind of stuff. Uh, ultimately in the New Covenant. Okay? I think I'm going the wrong way. Am I on this? Let's see. Now, here's some New Covenant items in Revelation 21. I'll give you a little preview here. First of all, we're going to see the church is called the heavenly Jerusalem. Well, Paul in Galatians 4.24 says the Jerusalem above is the church. Says it point out, point blank. Uh, John in Revelation 21 is going to call the new Jerusalem the bride of Christ. Are we the bride of Christ now? So that means the new Jerusalem is now. We're going to see in Revelation 21.3 that God tabernacles among his people, the church. Does God tabernacle among us, the church, now? Yes, he does. We don't have to wait to thousands of years in the future for that. In verse 4, John is going to say, in Revelation, John is going to say, old things passed away and new things have come. Does that sound familiar? 2 Corinthians 5.17, old things have passed away and new things have come. Behold, all things are new. John is going to talk about living waters springing up to eternal life in Revelation 21.6. That sounds just like Jesus when he was here. We're going to see that we're the sons of God in verse 7 in Revelation 21. Are we the sons of God now? Or do we have to wait to the, new, to the far future when everything is perfect? Nations stream into the church in Revelation 21. Well, they're not, that's not going to happen in the end of time because all the nations will be converted in the final state. There will be no non-believers streaming into the church. And we see that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles in verse 14 of this chapter. Is the church built on the foundation of the apostles even right now? That's a lot of evidence. So let's look at verse 2. And I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. Now this New Jerusalem comes down out of heaven. So from that we can get the phrase, the, the Jerusalem above or the heavenly Jerusalem, same thing. Well, we look in Hebrews 11. Well, first of all, i got to make a jump. In verse 1, we're talking about the new heavens and the new earth. Now we're talking about the new Jerusalem, which is a little bit different. But I contend it's the same thing. We see in Hebrews 11, <coughs> excuse me, in Hebrews 11, the, the new Jerusalem and the new heavens and the new earth are basically the same thing. For he, Abraham, was looking forward to the city that has foundations. And of course, that's the heavenly city, not the literal city, whose architect and builder is God. And of course, that city is the church, the new covenant church. They are seeking a homeland. That's the, the land. They, are, they now desire a better place, a heavenly one, a heavenly homeland. That's basically the new heavens and the new earth. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. So the idea of a heavenly city, a heavenly homeland, a heavenly, new Jerusalem and a uh, a new heavens and a new earth and a new Jerusalem. It's the same idea. Now, 
How do we know that this new Jerusalem is the church? This is easy. Revelation 3.12. The victor, the overcomer. I will make him a pillar in the sanctuary of my God. What's the sanctuary of my God? Are you in the temple of God now? Are you? Are you the temple of Christ? Yeah, you are the temple, right? And he will never go out again. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem. So all of those who are in the sanctuary of God, in the temple of God, they also have a name written on them, the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which means that basically they're Christians. And that, of course, happens now. That's not years in the future. And this new Jerusalem, it comes down out of heaven. There's that same phrase, it comes down out of heaven, the heavenly Jerusalem. All right, so Revelation 3.12 shows us that these victors, these overcomers, the overcomers in that particular church that he was writing to, they were already part of the New Jerusalem that comes down from above. You don't have to wait to the end of time to get into the New Jerusalem. All right, now Paul in Galatians 4.26 directly refers to the New Jerusalem as the church. He says, but the Jerusalem above, above means in heaven, the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother, therefore brothers. We are not children of the slave, but of the free woman, woman brothers. That means people that are in the Christian church at the time he was writing to Galatians. We are in the heavenly Jerusalem. So it all ties together. We go, well, we're still in verse 2. This holy city, this new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven, she is made ready as a bride for her husband. Is the church the bride of Christ? Is the new Jerusalem the bride? And you say, well, yeah, but how do you know it's not just the general bride? How do you know it's the bride of Christ? Well, John tells us right here in Revelation 21, 9 and 10. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls filled with the seven last plagues came and spoke with me. Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. Who's the lamb? All right. So the angel says, all right, John, I'm going to show you this bride, the bride of Jesus. He then carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven. There's the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven. Directly related to the bride of Christ. Are we the bride of Christ? All right, so how can there be any doubt that the new Jerusalem refers to the new covenant church? I don't see how anybody can deny that. I guess some might, but I can't. So let's go, well, that's the verse that says we're the bride of Christ. I'm going to skip that. You know that already. Let's go to verse 3. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. All right, a tabernacle is a tent where you live. And God, of course, speaking metaphorically, lived in the tent in the wilderness as the children of Israel came out of Egypt. And he lived among his people because he was in that tent, and the tent was surrounded by the people of God. He will dwell among them. He lived among the Old Testament Israelites. Of course, that's a type of the church. Does Jesus live in the church today? We are the temple of God, right? The temple of Christ. All right? They shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. And, of course, here's a, there's many verses that teach this, but 1 Corinthians 3.16, Don't you yourselves know that you are God's sanctuary, that's temple, and that the Spirit of God lives in you? So there's another New Testament reference right there in verse 3 concerning the new Jerusalem. So it's the church. Now, here's a verse that might make you think, well, everything Dan Trotter just said is crazy because it sounds like it's referring to the new heavens and the new earth at the final state at the end of time. Verse 4 
He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will no longer exist. Grief, crying, and pain will exist no longer because the previous things have passed away. Well, now, remember, I said the new covenant started in the first century, but does it stop being the new covenant in the first century? It goes to the second century, the third century, to our century, the 21st century, all the way to the end of time. And so, yes, the culmination of the new covenant, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will no longer exist. Grief, crying, and pain will exist no longer. And for those who think that the preterist view of Revelation des- destroys future happy, nice things for us, well, here's one right here. That's pretty good. No more grief, no more crying, no more pain. Now, let's show how that he's still talking about the new covenant, which was established first century. Look at the parallel here between Revelation 22, verse 4 and 5, and 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Well, first of all, let's read 2 Corinthians 5, 17. This is Paul talking. He's obviously first century. He says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away, and look, new things have come. Well, what does John say in Revelation about the new heavens and the new earth? He says, The previous things have passed away. Well, that's almost word for word. At least in in this translation, almost word for word. Previous things have passed away. Old things have passed away. And then in verse 5 in Revelation 21, then the one seated on the throne, that's God, the Father, says, look, I am making everything new. And look what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 17. New things have come. So the parallel is more than just coincidental, I would submit. And there's another point. God is making everything new. Now, if God is in the eternal state and everything is perfect, is there any more process? Is there any more improvement? Is there any more advance or progress? Or is everything perfect in the final state? It's all perfect, right? So has God in the process of making everything new? He's not. But if we're right here, now in the new covenant, does, does God still need to work on Dwayne? <laughs> See, if Dwayne, if Dwayne had his glorified body, he wouldn't have been sleeping all day Friday. <laughs> all right. So, yes, God is still working on us as we work through our sins and all that stuff and until we get to the end. So, I would submit to you, we're still talking about the new covenant in the first century. Go to verse 6, Revelation 21. And he, that's Jesus, said to me, it is done. What is done? Well, I think that's a reference to what John also wrote in John 19.30 when Jesus had received the sour wine when he was on the cross. He said, it is finished. And that's just a different way in English of saying it is done. Some translations have it is done, I think. It is done, it is done. What's done? What did Jesus do on the cross when he said it was done? That's right. He made the final sacrifice for our sins. It was over. And that was the beginning of the new covenant. And he says, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Alpha and Omega, the beginning Greek letter and the ending Greek letter. I will get... I will give water as a gift to the thirsty from the spring of life. Now, what is Jesus the beginning and the ending of, in your opinion? Everything. Hmm? everything. Well, he is the beginning, and, and, uh, and that's true. But more precisely, in context with what I'm talking about here, what is he the beginning of? Okay, that's true in general. Yeah, but yeah, in context here, he's the beginning of the new covenant, right? He's also the end of it, the goal of it, 
because he is everything. The new covenant is a big deal, folks. That's what we're in. It's a big, big deal. It's God's plan of redemption. It's his plan of, for history. It's his plan for you and me individually. It's a big deal. Now, talking about being the beginning and end of the new covenant, he then says, I will give water as a gift of the thirsty from the spring of life. Does that sound familiar? Sure. Jesus said that in John 4.14. This was in the Feast of Tabernacles ceremony, which is not in the scripture, but you can read about it. They poured water somehow. I forgot the details. But anyway, when they went to that public water pouring ceremony, Jesus stands up and he says, But whoever drinks from the water that I will give him will never get thirsty again ever. In fact, the water I will give him will become a well of water springing up with him for eternal life. Look how close that is. Water in Revelation, water in the book of John, first century. Uh, the spring right here in Revelation 21, the water is springing up in first century, in, in the first century, according to John. And this spring of water gives life in Revelation. And Jesus said, the water I give you is for eternal life in John. And what was that water, by the way? It was a symbol of something. What was it? What, what flows from your stomach like living water? The Holy Spirit. And John is just repeating the same idea. First covenant stuff, but, but we always want to take that and say, well, that's way off in the future. <coughs> no, I think we've got it now. And see, that's another advantage why this view of, of Revelation is not pessimistic. You know, we, first of all, we take all the bad judgments and we put them where they belong, which is in the judgment of Rome and Israel. So we don't necessarily have to face that stuff. And then the good stuff that we have, it might have been established in the past, but it's still going. We still have it. We don't have to wait for it. Like most people who read the book of Revelation. All right. Let's go to verse 7. He who overcomes will inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. Now, overcoming is the default position of a believer. Because he will be my son. And that really means he will be shown to be my son. Because if you're a son, you are an overcomer by definition. Now, that verse, if you first read it, it sounds like, well, I've got to do these things. I've got to overcome I got to overcome. I got to be a good, good Christian and then I will be a son. But that's not what the, the Bible says. It says here in 1 John 5, 4, because whatever has been born of God conquers the world. This is the victory that has conquered the world, our faith. You believe in Jesus, then by definition, you are a conqueror. You are not a worm. You know, you hear people say that all the time. I'm just a worm. I'm just a miserable sinner. You don't see that type of talk in the scriptures. Nowhere. We are conquerors. John, Jesus expected these Christians receiving the book of Revelation to overcome the horrible persecution they were getting ready to go through or, or were currently going through. He expected them to overcome. Now, if they didn't, let's say they pinched some incense to the emperor or they listened to the rabbi and said, yeah, Jesus is not the Messiah. I don't want to get in trouble with the synagogues. Well, what does that tell you? They weren't a son. Because if you're a son, you're going to conquer the world and you're going to have faith and you will have victory. Okay. So again, the book of Revelation is not something that gives fear. I had two emails from my son's mother-in-law last week. First thing she asked me, she says, tell me about the mark of the beast. I'm scared to death. She put that in her email. I'm scared to death. Two days later, she sends me another email. Tell me about Armageddon. I'm scared to death. Two emails, she talked about fear. And I finally said, look, did God, Jesus give us a spirit of fear? Did he give us an unsound mind or a sound mind? 
I said, what is the point of the book of Revelation? To scare the Gehenna out of us? What is it? It's to encourage us. All that bad stuff is for the unbelievers, not for the believers, because we are overcomers. Also, I was just listening to somebody just last night talking about how when she was in Christian school and saw a Left Behind movie, she was scared silly about Revelation. I don't want to say how many years it's been, several decades maybe, before she could even look at the book because she was so scared to look at it. I do not believe in this panic porn prophecy that you see floating around everywhere. You can, I've watched the movies. I've read the books. I used to be scared myself, to be honest with you. It just gives you fear. But you read the book of Revelation. John said in Revelation 1, 3, what did he say? He who hears this book read will be what? Scared to death? <laughs> Blessed. <laughs> Got a little wired up there. I calmed down. <laughs> <laughs> Revelation 21.8, but for the cowardly, he's contrasting the sons who have victory now. He's talking about the bad guys now, the unbelievers. But for the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. The first death, of course, is when you die and go into the grave physically. The second death is a spiritual death when you go to hell eternally. And that's not difficult. Well, I mean, it's difficult, but it's easy to understand. Now, um, all these things, of course, we say, yeah, well, I don't do all that. But how about this immoral? That means sexually immoral. That just doesn't mean generally immoral. The Greek means sexually immoral. And I'm going to tell you something. What has happened in the Church of Christ is absolutely abominable when it comes to sexual immorality. I mean, Colton was talking about pornography. But, you know, a lot of people do pornography and they think, well, that's bad. And they're just trapped by it. But I'm talking about Christians who say, ain't nothing wrong with it. I'll give you some personal examples. I had a my next door neighbor had a younger relative of his and she puts on Facebook little flowers, beautiful love note, chocolate, Valentine's, it was Valentine's Day. And she said, oh, my Christian boyfriend just loves me and prays. And it was a Bible verse too, you know. And then she says, we checked into the motel that night and had just a wonderful night. And my friend says, can you believe this? I said, you know, quite frankly, I can't believe it. I had a colleague at my college that I taught at in South Carolina who's a Christian and he rented out a little apartment. And he rented it to Christians because he wanted Christians in there. He went in there to clean the place up. He saw his, the Bible, there was a Bible there, and there was condoms all over the room. And one of my former Chinese students, who was a pagan and still is, but who was very moral and very upright, she happened to know the girl that was living in sin with her Christian boyfriend. And she says, Dr. Trotter. How can this be? And I said, you tell me. Wouldn't happen in China. Well, yes, it would now. It probably will because we've, we've gotten over there. And I could go on and on and on telling you stories like that. Folks, I mean, you know, this, this talks about people who constantly walk in. It's not talking about if you, you know, if people sin, obviously. I mean, let's face it. Uh, sometimes we act temp- cowardly. Maybe we did a Ouija board when we were in high school. Maybe we lied to her mama when she asked, have you done your homework yet? I, you know. I'm not saying that you're going to hell because of that, but it means if you walk in a constant lifestyle of that, generally people who are living a sexually immoral lifestyle will try to get out of it. I've watched enough YouTube videos. Uh, you can just tell. The, the, the Holy Spirit's telling me, I've got to stop this. I've got to get married if I'm going to do this. But anyway, that's a little bit off topic. Revelation 21.9, Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and spoke with me, saying, Come here, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. Now, this is, we've already seen this, actually. 
this is the new. This is a review here. Verse two says, "And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband." So again, the New Jerusalem is the bride of Christ. Now, not in the future. We go to verse. Oops, no, we don't here. We go to verse ten and eleven, and he, that's Jesus, carried. Excuse me, that's the angel carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the holy city of Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. Her brilliance was like a very costly stone, as a stone of crystal clear jasper. Now, this idea of light, the new covenant being full of light, at the end of the chapter, it's everywhere, and that means that we are children of light, and we are light in a dark world, and we are supposed to shine forth our glory into a dark world, and that's why all this stuff, this bad stuff that comes out of the church. And makes everybody mock us and laugh at us. It's not a good thing. It's not the way it's supposed to be. We're light. Now let's go to verses 12 and 13. It, that's the new Jerusalem, had a great and high wall with 12 gates. And the gates, 12 angels. And names were written on them, which are the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel. There were three gates on the east, and three gates on the north, and three gates on the south, and three gates on the west. Now, Remember I told you about the 24 elders around the throne in the vision? Twelve elders stood for the Old Testament tribes and the 12, 12 more elders stood for the New Testament apostles. And together those were the foundation of the people of God, Old Testament and New Testament. You're going to see the same symbolism here in the New Jerusalem. Because you're going to have 12 gates standing for the tribes and you have 12 foundation stones standing for the apostles, and together they make up the people of God who are in the new covenant now. So that's how that symbolism goes. Now, how about the gates? And the New Jerusalem is a perfect cube, as we'll see. You've got three gates on each side, north, east, south, and west. What's the symbolism of the north, east, south, and west? And later on we'll find out that those gates are never shut. They're always open. Jesus gives us a hint here in Luke 13, verse 29, they, that means people, will come from east and west, from north and south, and recline at the table in the kingdom of God. What is Jesus trying to say here? East and west, north and south, people are going to come and recline at the table. What is eating a symbol of? Yes, sir. Like that Jesus reclaimed all creation. That's right, from everywhere. East, west, north, and south, that means from all over the world, people are going to be coming in to the church. So the church is a worldwide phenomenon. It's all over the world. And people are going to be coming into it. And this eating at the table in the kingdom of God, that's a perfect symbol of fellowship. When we have the Lord's Supper, for example, we eat in communion with each other. We're all going to be eating together where there's no longer any death, any pain, any sorrow. Okay? Now this idea of nations coming into the kingdom, as I said, is at the end of the book. I'm going to give you a sneak preview here. Revelation 21, 24 through 26. The nations will walk in its light, and all the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. Each day its gates will never close, because it will never be night there. They will bring the glory and honor of the nations into it. Now, the reason a city closes its gates is to keep the bad guys from coming in, the thieves and the military people that are going to oppose it. Well, there's not going to be any opposition eventually, because the kingdom is going to be so glorious that there's not going to be any need to defend against the bad guys because all the good guys are coming into it. All the bad guys are being converted into good guys and coming into the, into the kingdom. Now bringing that glory into it, that's the symbol of the glory would be that wealthy things that gold, their silver, their pretty 
uh, cloths and all that kind of stuff. But all that's a symbol of the fact that they're taking everything they own. They're saying, uh-huh, we're giving it to you, God. We're going into your kingdom. We go to verse 14, Revelation 21. And the wall of the city had 12 foundation stones, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. Now, we know that apostles are foundations. They are foundations of the church, God's household in Ephesians 2. So then you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of God's household built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets also. The whole building put together by him goes into a holy sanctuary in the Lord. Now here the apostles are foundations of a building, which is a symbol of the church. But here it's the apostles are the foundation of the new covenant, which is the church. And we're going to find out later there is no temple in the and the, the, the city itself is the temple, as we'll see in just a minute. So this foundation, as part, the foundation of the temple in the, in the first century is really the same thing as the foundation of the New Covenant in Revelation 21. Now we go to verses 15 and 17. The one who spoke with me had a gold measuring rod to measure the city. That's one of those angels, bold angels. To measure the city, its gates, and its wall. The city is laid out in, its, in a square. Its length and width are the same. So in other words, it's a cube this way. Perfect cube. He measured the city with the rod at 12,000 stadia is the original Greek. And the English, that's 1,500 miles. Its length, width, and height are equal. Then he measured its wall, 144 cubits. The wall is 72 yards, according to human measurement which the angel used. Now, I want to talk about hyperliteralism, and I had a seminal moment in my Christian growth when I was in college, and there was a young man who was a student at Columbia Bible College, it's now Columbia International University, and his job was to teach us heathen, barbarian Carolina students, you know, the hippie Christians. We were in the Jesus movement, you know, and we were a little bit, you know, how shall we say, untutored, so... (laughs) So this guy comes in to teach us, and he gets the revelation here, and he describes all this. And I'm thinking in my head, you know, and and uh, I, I, I asked him, I said, well, you mean the New Jerusalem's going to be, uh, we're going to live in a cube floating down in, in the sky? And he said, yeah, and there's going to be streets of gold in there. I said, you mean that literally? He was a dispensationalist, so he said, yeah, literally. And I said, well, Joe, I want some grass. I want some grass and trees. I don't want to live on gold. If golds are everywhere, I'm not going to, it's not going to be anything to me. And I said, surely you don't think that's literally. Surely you mean that's symbolic. And he would not back off of it. He said, no, that's literal. And folks, I'm going to tell you, when you do that, you make the Bible into a joke. And, you know, that's not a good apologetic thing to do to somebody who, I was about to, I almost had lost my faith the year before, and so he's coming and telling me this stuff, the stuff I was raised on. It's one reason why I had trouble believing, because it sounded so crazy. All right. Now, another thing to show how silly it is to take this literally. Picture this city. It's 1,500 miles high on each side, okay? And it's protected by a wall. How high is the wall? (laughs) 72 yards. You think a wall 72 yards high is going to protect, excuse me, yeah, the wall 72 yards is going to protect the side of a city that's 1,500 miles high? Of course not. It was meant to be symbolic. Well, let's see. If, and, of course, you have to go to the original Greek. And we've talked about the number 12 a lot. Well, 12 stands for what? We just talked about there's 12 
foundation stones between the gates, you know, 12 apostles. A thousand is 10 times 10 times 10, and 10 stands for many, 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 like the cattle on a thousand hills. So basically it's talking about this is a city that's founded on the apostles, and it's, it's large. There's a lot of people in there. And again, this idea of when Jesus comes back, will he find faith on the earth? There's just going to be a few tiny people left after the great apostasy. It's not in the Bible. What about the parable of the leaven that dropped the leaven in the lump and it just gets bigger and bigger and bigger? You look at all the parables about the kingdom of God. It's expanding, folks. It ain't shrinking. And you read enough futurist eschatology, dispensationalist eschatology at least, the church is shrinking. We're, you know, we're, we're hunkered down as we, as we wait for the Antichrist to come get us. And that's not what you see in the book of Revelation. All right, so we got 12 times 10 times 10 times 10. So that means base of apostles with lots and lots of people in it. And the wall is 144 cubits. 12 raised to the second power is 144. That just, again, the idea is the apostles are the foundation of this New Jerusalem. Now, I'm not going to read this to you. This is chapter 21, verses 18 through 21. This is each. Well, I'll read verse 18 to you. The building material of its wall was jasper, and the city was pure gold, like clear glass. And so if you think you think of trans, translucent gold, you know, beautiful gold, the whole idea is, is stagecraft. It's to show how beautiful the New Covenant is, how beautiful we are. Okay? That's the whole point. And all these stones... The foundations of the city, that's where the, the apostles' names were. All those beautiful stones, they don't even know how to translate these stones. Some of them they do, but some of them they don't even know what kind of stone it is or what color it is. And I gave up on that a long time ago. I used to try to pin everyone down. I'd look at Wikipedia and get a picture. That's not going to work. It's just, a, it's just beautiful, okay? We go to Revelation 21, verse 22 and 23. I saw no temple in it in the New Jerusalem, for the Lord God the Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. Now we already saw that God Himself was tabernacled, He was in the temple of the New Jerusalem. Okay? Now God Himself is, is referred to as the temple, and Jesus is the temple. So, with the first metaphor, God is in the people, and in this metaphor, the people are in God. Because don't you go to a temple to worship God? God lives in the temple and you go into the temple? The Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. And so you're in the New Jerusalem, you're a Christian in the New Covenant, you're going into, you're into Jesus, you're into God. He's the temple. And then that verse I've quoted to you previously in the verse, God was in His people. Now how many times you go through the New Testament and, and read these phrases? Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ is in you, and then we're in Christ. You ought to do a Bible study on that. I did that one time. It's everywhere, but you never hear anybody talk about it too much. But, and every time you see the word in in the New Testament, I check this out in the Greek, you can translate it as in union with. So whenever I see in, I say, okay, Christ in union with God, and God in union with the Christian. And that's kind of the idea here, is that the, the Christians and God the Father and God the Son are one. In verse 23, and the city has no need of the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God is illuminated and its lamp is the Lamb. So this idea of light all comes from Isaiah 60. Isaiah, let's start with verses 1 and 2 and 3 in Isaiah 60. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord shines over you. 
Now that would be Jesus is the light shining on us. For look, darkness covers the earth and total darkness the peoples, but the Lord will shine over you and His glory will appear over you. Nations will come to your light and kings to the brightness of your radius. Notice that phrase there. Nations are coming into the kingdom. We're going to see this in just a minute. The gates are always open so that the kingdoms of the world can come into the new covenant kingdom. Into the new covenant city. Verse 24. Here it is right here. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. Now this, I'm not talking about post-millennialism here. I'm talking about preterism, but I want to throw a little post-mill tidbit out here, okay? Look at this. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. Into the kingdom of God, into the new covenant. This is what we need to be doing, folks, is getting people into the kingdom. Evangelizing, not worrying about the latest machinations in the Mideast or who the Antichrist is going to be. I don't care who the Antichrist is going to be because he doesn't exist. He's already dead. But I don't care about speculating about stuff like that. This is what I'm interested in, in seeing the nations walk by the light of Jesus Christ as, as illumined in his church. That's what we want. And again, this comes from Isaiah 60, verse 5. Then you will see and be radiant, and your heart will tremble and rejoice, because the riches of the sea will become yours, and the wealth of the nations will come to you. And by the way, if you're reading the Old Testament, how many times have I read Old Testament prophets and had it told to me that this is talking about the church will become rich? Because it's interpreted literally. Hyper-literal hermeneutic will just mess you up every time. Because it's not talking about physical wealth. It's talking about everything that the nations have will come into the kingdom. We go now to verses 25 and 27. 25, 26, and 27. In the daytime, for there will be no night there, its gates will never be closed, and they will bring the glory and honor of the nations into it. That's what I've been talking about. Let's skip 27 for right now. Look at Isaiah 60, 11. Your gates will always be open. They will never be shut day or night so that the wealth of the nations may be brought into you with their kings being led a procession. This is an idea of the unsaved nations of the world coming to Christ. This is the idea of the earth being taken back by God, the earth which is in total rebellion against Jesus and against God his Father, and we are going to take the nations back, and the meek shall inherit the earth. And we are not going to be defeated. We will never be defeated. I don't care how bad things look. I mean, you know, we think things are bad now in this country because of the culture and politics. Think of how bad it was in Jesus' day, in the Apostles' day, in the book of Revelation. It was horrible. Think of how bad it is in China right now. It can always get worse. And it probably will get worse. But I don't care. The church is going to not only survive, but prosper. Oops. Let me read verse 27. And nothing unclean, and no one who practices, practices abomination and lying shall ever come into it, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Now, one more argument. This is referring to the new covenant and not to the final eternal state. Why would John say in the eternal state where everything is perfect, there's no sin, there's no evil, there's nothing bad, why would he say, hey, nothing's going to come into the, into the new Jerusalem we're, not, we're going to keep out all who practice abomination and lying. They're not going to come in. There's not anybody like that in the final state that could come in. And Steve gave me this analogy. This is a good one. He said, you know, if there's a boat in the water and you said, hey, there's no water going to get into that boat. That would make sense, right, if the boat was in the water? Because there's water everywhere. What if the boat's in a desert? And you say, no, I'm going to be any water getting into that boat. What have you said? Absolutely nothing. It's irrelevant, right? 
Well, likewise, if this is referring to the final state where there are no Gentile nations and there are no evil people or abominable people or liars or sorcerers or immoral people, if they're not there, why is John saying, hey, they're not going to get in? It would be irrelevant. One more indication that this is talking about the new covenant. Okay. Here's some application. We're in the new heavens and the new earth now. Now, you know, that might sound sort of radical. Everybody always says new heavens and new earth referring to the new redeemed earth. And by the way, I do believe that this earth will be redeemed. I don't believe that the physical heavens and earth that we live in now is the same as it's always going to be. It's going to be a lot better. Remember in Romans 8, Paul said, uh, when the the earth will no longer be subjected to its bondage to decay... The earth is decaying. It just—you can look at it. Look how ugly everything is out there. I mean, no offense, but you know what I mean. Compared to <laughs> compared to how it's going to be, it's going to be beautiful out there, you know. So I'm not saying that the new earth that, that we're not going to have a new physical heavens and new earth. I'm just saying that the phrase in the scripture is not referring to that. It's referring to the new covenant. The bride of Christ is the new Jerusalem now. The nations are flowing into New Jerusalem, north, east, south, and west. So let's evangelize now. God is tabernacled among His people now, and we are lit up with the glory of God now. And see, that's a positive message. That's a negative, not a negative message about the book of Revelation. And now, let me summarize here with Revelation's positives. We will be blessed when we read and hear the book, verse 3 of chapter 1. Our enemies will be destroyed. We will inherit a kingdom. We will evangelize the world. We are conquerors in Christ. Now, is that a different message than what you usually hear when you hear about the book of Revelation? So I'm saying this is not just uh, academic discussion. This is fundamental. It could change your whole way you, you look at life. Eschatology is about Christian philosophy, a philosophy of the future. How do you view the future? And everybody has to deal with the future. Don't you kids worry about the future all the time? Who am I going to marry? How many kids am I going to have? What my job's going to be? Everybody worries about the future. It doesn't stop, you know? Who's going to do my funeral? <laughs> so we, we all... We, we all have to worry about the future, and if we have a positive uh, outlook on the future, we'll live the present much more positively. Since I got a little bit of time here, let's close with prayer, and then um, and then I'll turn it over to Steve or Gerald. Lord God, I do come before you, and I do thank you, Lord, for um, getting us through this difficult book. It is a difficult book, but Lord, you put it in your canon of Scripture for a reason, I'm sure, and you said we'd be blessed by reading it. I pray that we'll be blessed by it, and all the and it's, all the little details that that I might have screwed up on, or Whatever I hope that we can, that it won't matter that we'll that we'll catch the spirit of the whole book, which is as I said, is the the idea of dominion and victory for Christians. Lord, we need encouragement. Things are so bad in the church and in the world today, or in the West especially, so bad. We need encouragement. We need to keep going. I pray for that encouragement. I pray that you would, and I pray in particular for this church here. I've seen people go down and witness in the inner city of Atlanta and people protest in abortion clinics and people witnessing all over the place. This church is alive and full of, full of your life. And I pray that you would bless that, Lord, because we know that you give good works. You give linen to clothe the saints. And, Lord, you are giving good works to the individual brothers and sisters in this church and also the things that are not so visible, the, the kind words that are spoken to one another, the encouragement the wisdom that's imparted, all that stuff, Lord, all this good stuff that's happening here uh, in a living, vibrant church is something that a lot of Christians, unfortunately, don't get to experience too much. 
And I pray that you would maintain it and make it grow and that you would bless every brother and sister in this church. Bless their going out. Bless their coming in. Bless the whole course of their life, Lord. And I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. This message was produced by the New Testament Reformation Fellowship, reforming today's church with New Testament church practices. Permission is hereby granted for you to reproduce this message. You can find us on the web at www.ntrf.org. May God bless you as you seek to follow Him in complete obedience to His Word. May your faith in the Lord Jesus be strengthened and your daily walk with Him deepened.